If Jesus moved to Fayetteville, where do you think he would want to worship? Here? Temple Shalom? Genesis Church? It's a pretty silly question, isn't it? Almost as silly as asking what kind of car Jesus would drive or what football team Jesus would cheer on or what politician he would vote for. The reason that asking what would Jesus do is problematic is that it assumes we can pluck Jesus out of his ancient context and drag him forward into our own and wield him as a spiritual weapon that always seems to support our agenda. Jesus doesn't work like that. That question, what would Jesus do, is one that really doesn't help us grow in faith. But it leads to a question that I think does, a self-reflective question, which is, what do you think Jesus would think about what we do here in his name each week? What would Jesus think about our music, our organ, our hymns, our choir? What would Jesus think about our windows, especially the ones that claim to depict him? What would Jesus think about communion? Do you think Jesus would recognize the ways in which we do all this in remembrance of him? Or would our style of worship be so strange that Jesus would give it a hard pass? As far as we can tell, the Jesus of the New Testament wasn't a big fan of organized religion. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them recall that the first time Jesus went to Jerusalem as an adult, he went straight to the temple, turned over all the tables, and chased the money changers out of the precincts. If someone walked in here and started doing that, turning things over and throwing candlesticks and chalices on the floor, It wouldn't matter who it was, we would call the police and have them arrested. We look back at that prophetic act and mistakenly assume that Jesus had a problem with the religion of his day, Second Temple Judaism. But a close reading of the gospel reminds us that Jesus wasn't opposed to the religion of his ancestors. He just had a few pointed criticisms to offer about one or two of its expressions. We usually think of Jesus as the victim against whom the religious authorities plotted, but actually Jesus gave out just as much pointed criticism of them as they shot back his way. In this gospel lesson from the end of Mark chapter 12, just a little before it, at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus tells a parable that leaves no doubt that the religious leaders he was confronting were faithless, greedy, evil, even murderous. Should we blame them for dishing out what they themselves had received? As chapter 12 progresses, we get one confrontation after another as the Pharisees and Herodians and Sadducees and scribes all come to Jesus asking him trick questions to see if they can undermine his credibility among the people. They want to force him to take an unpopular position and erode the support that he has with the crowds. 
But we know how that works. We know that each time Jesus deftly dismisses their tricks with an appeal to a more basic foundational religious principle that no one can dispute. But then after a few of these tests, another scribe comes, the one we hear about in today's gospel lesson. This latecomer to the rhetorical party seems to have a different goal in mind. He doesn't seem to want to trap Jesus, but even to learn from him. Which commandment is first of all, he asks. It's the kind of question that any would-be disciple would ask of a teacher, trying to figure out whether this teacher is one worth following at all. Of all the traditions, of all the, the statutes, of all the legislation in our faith, what What part of it would you say is most important? Which part is first, the scribe asks. The response Jesus gives begins in a familiar place. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Shema, this affirmation of God's singularity, is the backbone of the Jewish faith. It is a prayer still spoken every day and every night by observant Jews. It is the foundation from which everything else flows. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. By starting in that place, Jesus was letting the scribe and the audience know that his approach to the faith of his ancestors, his authoritative teaching, was built on a very traditional understanding of who God is. But Jesus didn't stop there, did he? The second is this, he continued, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The translation we use here at St. Paul's, the New Revised Standard Version, leaves out a word. It's seemingly an easy, casual word to leave out, but I think actually upon reflection, it's a word we need to hear. It's a word that the King James Version and our Right One Liturgy conveys. It's the word like. The second is like it, or the second is like unto it. Without that word like... It almost seems like Jesus is having a hard time making up his mind. Like the scribe asked him to pick one commandment, but he he just can't come up with one and has to give two. Like if you ask me what my favorite ice cream flavor is, I'll tell you it's chocolate and vanilla and sometimes coffee. But when we hear that word like, when we hear that Jesus is saying these two commandments are alike, we realize that he's not having a hard time making up his mind. He's trying to convey something bigger, something deeper, that that actually you can't love God without loving your neighbor and vice versa. That those two things are alike, if not inseparable. Mark, the gospel writer, tries to convey this connection with a, a literary flourish that seems to flow from one sentence to the other without any interruption as Jesus offers his teaching and the scribe then repeats it back to him without making any distinction between each of the parts. God is one and beside him there is no other. And, and to love God with all the heart and understanding and strength and to love one neighbor as oneself It's as if we get to hear this scribe internalizing this 
this summary of what it means to be faithful as a whole, integral, indivisible expression of faithfulness. Now, when we think about those two familiar commandments separately, there's really nothing new for us. Each of them has, for as long as words have been written, been important to God's people. But when Jesus combines them as if they're two sides of the same thing, we discover something new about being faithful. Jesus teaches that there can be no difference between loving God and loving neighbor, that you can't have one without the other. And so remarkable was this teaching that the scribe, this this one whose entire identity was enmeshed with the religious traditions and institutions of his day, this scribe says uncharacteristically words that seem to dismiss the temple worship. This is much more important than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, he says. So why bother with them? Why bother with the offerings and sacrifices? Or in our own day, why bother with a church? Why bother building a church? Why bother spending all that money on pews and windows, on the organ and the altar, on the clergy and the musicians? If loving God means loving our neighbor, why come to church at all? Why not spend Sunday mornings out helping people in need? Why not spend all this money on feeding the hungry and providing shelter to those who experience homelessness? Why? Because the love of God and the love of neighbor flow into each other, strengthening our commitment to both and shaping us for a life of deep faithfulness. When we're left to our own devices, which is to say without God's inspiration and help, our love of neighbor quickly becomes an exercise in self-interest. We help those in need because it makes us feel good. We give money away because we want to be held in high esteem by others. That pretense of caring about others is really a mask for a care mostly about ourselves. And eventually we find ways to define what it means to care for others in ways that reflect our sense of what's most important and who is most valuable. But when it's up to us to draw the circles around who is most important and who is most valuable, we always draw those circles in ways that reflect our priorities instead of God's. But when we worship God, when we come into this place, when we encounter God's presence, when we acknowledge that the Lord is our God, that God is one, and that we are called to love God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind, that kind of worship and devotion shapes us. In worship, we encounter God And that encounter with the divine changes us. It changes us in the ways that we think and the ways that we act so that who we are and what we do and what we see begins to look like God. If God is the one who loves the world completely and unconditionally, our worship of God helps us love the world in that same way. 
It helps us leave behind our own definitions and cling only to what God would have us see. If our worship doesn't accomplish that, then we haven't met God at all. Worship that doesn't change us into the likeness of God is merely an exercise in idolatrous futility. What did you think you'd find here today when you walked through those familiar doors? What did you think would be waiting for you? If you came expecting anything less than a transformative encounter with Almighty God, you came for the wrong reasons. And if you leave without experiencing that encounter, then we have let down not only you, but even God. How will you know whether we got it right? How can we tell that our worship is good and holy and faithful? If you bring to God your whole heart and soul and mind and strength, God will shape you into one who loves the world the way God loves the world, for the world's sake. Let that always be our focus here. Amen.